Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast. Very glad to have you here with us as we continue our discussion. And it's very good to have Locke, you with us again, and Luke. Wonderful. I'm Ken. <laughs> and it's, uh, I agree, it's wonderful to have the whole team back together. I'm Luke, and I'm very glad to be here. And I'm Lachlan, and I'm glad to be here, recovering from a slight head cold that was not coronavirus, but I hope that coughs don't interrupt my contributions to this well, podcast. Well, if they do, I suggest you edit them out. We we have now sort of arrived, or sort of we're arriving at the point to which at least the quarterly has been working us. Uh, the discussion in the Seventh-day Adventist quarterly this week is on the New Covenant, and... Uh, there is some discussion about the differences between the new and the old covenant and and uh, what what hasn't changed between the new and old covenant. And uh, I have a few questions about this. But, Locke, you've, you've drawn our attention to a great passage, which is referred to in the lesson, uh, an Old Testament passage that identifies God's intention to create a new covenant. Could you take us there, Locke? Yeah, this is Jeremiah 31, and it's actually pretty catchy to remember because it's Jeremiah 31, verse 31. I think that's where we should start, and maybe we should read through till uh, verse 37, perhaps, or to the end of the chapter. I, I think we should. 37. I think we should. Uh, oh, no, no, Luke, gonna say you're going to go to the end. All right, well, okay, I don't mind. Let's do it. <laughs> well, it's, I, I mean, it's just because there's weird <laughs> stuff in the end that I like. I like the weird stuff. Yeah. yeah good. Fascinates me. Right, well, I'll start off then. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hanel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill of Gareb, and shall then turn to Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes, and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron, to the corner of the house gate toward the east, shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be uprooted or overthrown any more forever. Now, um, an incidental thing, I'm sure, to the central theological point of this passage, but I was a bit concerned in verse 37, because just before um, sitting down to record this podcast, I was I was browsing telescopes because I've got some boys that are interested in stars and planets, and uh, I now discover that the measuring of the heavens is identified in this passage as a 
necessary requirement for God to forego his covenant. <laughs> I, I know it has only just this week, Cam, been the, the lunar eclipse. Yeah. So a great many people have turned their thoughts towards the heavens and the measuring thereof. Uh, so I suppose we should all be very careful. Hmm. I, is is the author? I actually is the author just referring to something that uh, that is certainly for the people of the day obviously an impossibility. It, it, yes, it oh, sounds like a literary device. That uh, it has to be. And actually, I thought something when those verses came uh, in the context of covenant. They struck me as being very reminiscent of the story of Noah and the flood. And shall never again, the rainbow is a sign that I shall never again send a, a flood of destruction. And here, it's not atmospheric signs of the heavens, but it's almost like cosmic signs of the heavens, declaring that God will never cast off the offspring of Israel. And um, the yeah, I found that connection quite jumped out at me. One of the interesting things, isn't it, is to look at the ways in which uh, this covenant is different. Um, so he says in verse 32, it will not be like the covenant I made with the forefathers. So if something is not like something else, it is different uh, to that other thing. So in, in what ways is this covenant different? And uh, th there, are, there are a number of ways that strike me first off, and you can and one that I'm going to reserve for later, um, although it might become obvious in our discussion. Um, but I go to the end, um, and uh, verse 37, or indeed verse 36, only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. So um, uh, the it's obvious that the decrees that God has made are not ones that he's going to forget. They're not ones that are going to vanish from his sight. So in, in essence, he's saying it will never be that Israel will cease to be a nation before me. Um, uh, now, So that's the first thing. And the way in which that will happen is in verse 37, only if these things that aren't going to happen, happen, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done. Now, um, hmm. there were elements of some of the uh, promises that God made that were conditional. Um, uh, if you obey my laws and covenants, you know, if, if you obey my covenant, these, these are the things that will happen. And it seems to me that that's potentially one of the ways that this one is different. Because I, in essence, God is saying, I will not reject the descendants of Israel because of what they have done. Their disobedience will not lead to my rejection. So is is that is that then the the new covenant? Mm. The the is that how it's different from the old covenant? In, in in just essentially that it's the same except he's not going to the conditionality he's not is going gone. To cancel, yes, he's going to remove the conditionality. I'm not too happy with it though, because if God says this covenant is different, because I won't forget this one. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not. It's not that he. It's not that he's not going to forget it. That makes it different. It's the absence of the uh, conditionality in it. It's the absence of the fact that it will not be revoked based on your behaviour. And that is echoed at the start of this section that we read, Ken, uh, because in verse thirty-two, um, God is saying, I, "I made this the old covenant I made with the with their fathers of the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt." my covenant that they broke. 
So he's saying there was a problem with the old covenant. It was broken. Mm. Not by me. I'm God. I was I was to them like a husband and holding them by the hand. There's a lot of there's a lot of very personal imagery right there, isn't it? I, I led them out of Egypt by the hand. I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. It's it's quite nice. But somehow the covenant fell apart because the people broke mm. it. And what I hear us noticing here, particularly in the poetic kind of verses of 35, 36, 37, is God emphasizing this this idea, this new notion, it's going to be forever. But that's not a new notion. That's exactly what the covenant with Noah mm. was like. Well, that's, this is the and point I was making. It's almost as if he's returning to yeah. it. And, and we noticed a pattern early on. God said to the people uh, with the tree of knowledge, good and evil, with Adam and Eve, if you eat it on that day, you'll die. And then he doesn't mm. follow through. And then he says, do you know what? I've decided to destroy all living things. All living things. Birds, people. He leaves off fish because it's hard to destroy fish with a flood. I think you pointed out. Like, he said, I'm just going. I'm going to destroy all living people. That's what I'm going to do. All right, go build a boat so that you, I can. So and and then I'll send in pairs of every living animal. That's not destroying every living thing. That's 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 God not <laughs> following through. And then he says to Noah after the flood, "Look, I've decided. I've had enough with people. People's wickedness. They're driving me a bit mad. I'm going to limit limit their lifespan." From now on, I'm going to limit their lifespan. And that doesn't happen either. Yeah, not for a long time. And there's another Mm. element of this too, um, uh, where in a sense this hasn't been fulfilled. Um, I don't know whether this is historically disputable, but I I will not... The the descendants of Israel will never cease to be a nation before me. Well, uh, I think the nation of Israel politically as it is today, is something quite different to the nation of Israel that perhaps would have received this promise that they will go on forever. Um, so, so that, so mm. that in a sense, mm. he hasn't kept this one <laughs> in a different it's a bit way. Like Murphy's, <laughs> it's a bit like Murphy's axe, mm. though, isn't it? Uh, it was his favourite axe. He'd replaced the head three times and the handle five times, but it was still the same old axe. Yeah, it could, could be. Yes. Could be. Well, it's a bit like the human body. Um, mm. uh, you know, the, 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 the actual cells that, aside from neurons perhaps, um, uh, my, my physiology's perhaps a little poor, but uh, most of the cells in my body now are not the very cells that were in my body uh, when I was born. Um, the- mm. Yes, I, I had good cause to think about that recently, Ken, because I've, I've since I've come back to Australia, I've seen people again that I literally haven't seen for 15 mm. years. And there is a sense when you do that, very much, that you are strangers and you're meeting for the first time. Um, mm. Because in a very real way, you, you are completely new people. Um, and it could just be an imagined, um, you know, an imagined sensation from the reality that you just haven't interacted with that person for so long that you've both changed a lot emotionally and mentally and all the rest of it. But it it's still, you know, it's something that strikes you mm. when you see people again after a very long break and you you feel, it feels very strange to both know them and yet not know them at the same time. Mm. That, that, that mm. is a real paradox, isn't it? A genuine paradox. Mm. 
I am the same and yet um, I am entirely different. So I, I suppose, and attempting to relate that in any way whatsoever with our topic tonight, I, I wonder what exactly is the definition of Israel in in this in this chapter because it, it says it says up the top the people of Israel the people of Israel are, I will make a new in fact in thirty one it says the people of Israel and the people of Judah but then it doesn't mention Judah again because they, they were always less important. Um, <laughs> And then people of people of Israel is mentioned again in thirty three, but when you come down to thirty six, it, it it says it talks about Israel being a nation, mm. Mm. and then in verse thirty seven it talks about the descendants of Israel. Mm. Mm. Christ doesn't so it, it, seem it, to think too much about people's, you know, you know he he really rips into the Pharisees. He says, "Oh, so you're children of Abraham? Well, that's good. God could make children of Abraham out of rocks." If he needed them, which which is, um, which is of of course God, the children of Abraham were miraculously made. I mean that's so you know the nation of Israel does that doesn't seem to Christ doesn't seem to regard it as a as a particularly useful identifying quality, right? Because so the I Roman centurion and I'm... the Syrophoenician woman and and and. Christ travels among Gentiles and Samaritans and all sorts. Uh, yeah, so I suppose what I'm getting at, Cam, is is can we look at the the people of Israel, the descendants of Israel, the nation of Israel here, and apply it to a wider group than, say, a certain uh, theocracy kingdom, so of a certain period of so history we'll, and a certain race of we'll people. Construe it retrospectively, in order to achieve fulfilment of the covenant. <laughs> oh no! Well, I mean, but that—that—that no. that, that is the Adventist <laughs> position on the interpretation Ken. of these verses, isn't it? Ken, that it is all referring to the plan of salvation. Yeah, yeah, but Ken, we don't just retrospectively read it so that the passage is fulfilled. We retrospectively read it so that it's fulfilled through us. <laughs> oh, I laugh so, far too loudly at that. <laughs> uh. There is, there is, however, even in the Old Testament, and, and we're deliberately being a little bit uh, thought-provoking by examining the New Covenant through the Old Testament mm. this week, mm. just for fun. But even in the Old Testament, there's passages like Isaiah 56, which we did read um, a season or two ago when we were looking at the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 56 speaks of salvation for the foreigner mm. who has joined himself to the Lord. And um, if I recall correctly, Locke, that was the one where even I said this feels very messianic, and you know that if I think it's messianic, it, mm. it really must be. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. yes, yeah, that's <laughs> it. It was it was unambiguously. So the this idea, even in the Old Testament, I think I would phrase it in the following way: the Old Testament, in its best moments, really does catch this vision that God is trying to communicate of his love for and saving grace towards and his his um, spirit-led activity within mm. all peoples of the earth, not just well, some specially chosen nation. Lock. So, so hey, oh, you, you go, Cam. Uh, okay. I've got something really well, interesting to I was follow that I was going to throw well. to you anyway, Luke. Um, Ken and I, in our discussion last week, which you guys missed out on, floated the idea that, that the notion of, of a nation as God's people um, is superseded in the New Testament by the concept of being Christ's disciples. 
and that this is mm. manifestly open to Cornelius, who's is Roman and and uh, Ethiopian eunuch, and you know, many people become Christ's disciples. And at least it seems in the minds of the New Testament Church that that is sufficient for them. They that, that the notion to them of belonging to the nation of Israel seems less important. So this is perfect, Cam, because I think there is a hint towards that very idea in verses 33 and 34 here, which I've just noticed in the reading of it. And I'm going into semantics again, because it's about the specific way that the verse is worded and it's a translation of blah, 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 blah. But this is still really interesting. So if you look at 33, this is talking about the new covenant, right? This is in in the context. This is the, the covenant that is not like the covenant he made with their ancestors. Um, the new covenant is that I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Okay, so far that doesn't sound particularly new compared to the old one, mm. right? The old mm. one has, has very much sort of these sort of elements that they will be my people, I will be their God, and I will give them my law and these sort of things, right? But then in verse 34 it says, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now, what I am will suggest to you is that the they in that sentence refers not only to the people of Israel, but also their neighbors, which is to say, everybody. Hmm. I, I, I like that idea. I, what, what I want to do, if you'll allow me, I've been saving this, um, <laughs> because it excites me. Um, uh, one of the things that we've looked at is, if I can call it, the ter- one of the terms of the covenant and how the conditionality is uh, removed. Po- possibly that's a difference. Um, uh, Luke, uh, you draw uh, attention to uh, another element of it, the expansion uh, of the beneficiaries uh, of the covenant. I wonder whether in verse 33 we are seeing the way in which the covenant is different is the way in which it is, and I'm struggling to come up with the word here, but the way in which it's implemented, the way in which it functions. Embodied. Uh, and that it is embodied. And, and, and Locke, you used the words um, previously when we were talking, spirit-led activity within peoples and nations. But here we see... This is the spirit-led activity within a person. Um, that the law mm. is not now something that is stated by God. It's not written on a tablet of stone. It's it's, it's not imposed from above or outside. Yeah, it, quite so. Well, and and by grace, it is something that is perhaps to use a strange word, imbued um, from above, um, but. It, it, it is mm. something that becomes internal, uh, that's written on the minds and the hearts, not on tablets of stone, not even in the way the Sabbath is in time. Uh, uh, it's not something that is made real and binding on God by uh, being signed, sealed and delivered with a particular sign. Um, it is now something where he is... Uh, intimately interacting with humanity uh, and 
Mm. creating people who naturally do the things that the covenant is asking them to do. Uh, and for that reason, uh, it's not a behaviour-based covenant, if you like. Um, it's a an, an internal being-based covenant. Now, I feel that I've inadequately conveyed that concept, but maybe it's the start of some sort of discussion. Well, here's, here, let me continue, mm. Ken. Um, Christ says, uh, Sermon of the Mount, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm. Uh, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, don't murder. Well, there you are, Ken, that's an outward. Yeah, and there it is. It's in the Ten Commandments. And it's in the Ten Commandments. Mm. And, on a piece um, of stone. Anyone who, any, uh, that'll be on a piece of stone. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother uh, will be subject to judgment. Mm. So there's a change in the mind and the heart. There's a change in the way you think about mm. others. Um, there's a change in the way, indeed, that you feel about other people. Mm. And, and, and it reminded me of, of other passages in the New Testament. And if we... Uh, and perhaps we ought allow ourselves a little more time to explore the New Testament, but I think these ones come in directly relevant. Um, and, and and there are two passages in Hebrews, um, and the first is Hebrews 8.10. Uh, you've got a bookmark, Ken. Yeah. Go. Yeah, well, it's just it just quotes the passage we've read in, mm. at length in Hebrews mm. 8. Mm. So... Uh, in the mind of the author of the book of Hebrews, mm. what we've just read in Jeremiah uh, finds fulfilment in the person mm. of Christ. Mm. Yeah. Very, uh, very I, clearly. Th that doesn't surprise me at all, uh, even though I wasn't aware of it, because if the, the concepts here in 33 through to 36, 37-ish, um, and we can get to 38 to 40 as well, th those concepts are remarkable. They're, they're groundbreaking. They're, is, is this the first time in the context of a covenant that the idea of forgiveness of sins is even referred to? It seems to be coming... When you say that, it actually does mm. sound to me like the first that we've discussed, but maybe I've... No, it's the second, Ken. Something. It's the second, because after the flood, God says that he's not going to send, mm. send another flood, even though every inclination of man is evil. Evil. Right, so that's a removal of conditionals, but it, he doesn't say that he's going to forgive their sins. And, and indeed, here's the other it? difference about it, Cam, as to what you said. Even though every inclination of their heart is evil, here he is saying, not only that, I am going to change the inclination of their hearts, their hearts. and minds. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And they will, they will all know me from mm. the least of them to mm. the greatest. And and this is this is one of the things which, that which, which, Paul was talking about in Colossians you, three and verse yeah. two, I think when he said, "Set your minds on things that are above, and not on things of the mm. earth." So it raises a really interesting question about how does God do this, putting the law in our minds and writing it in our hearts? What does that look like? What's the anthropological? Uh, uh, function that is performed to do that what's the psychology um of of this writing of the law what's the physiology 
of this, what's the neuroscience of a law written on a mind? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, back back to when I was 10 and 11, Ken, the, the Pathfinder worship answer to that would have been, oh, well, that's your conscience, which which prompts you with, with uh, you know, fundamental feelings of what's right. And I am not actually dismissing it. it. It can be a bit of a trite and thoughtless answer, but I actually think there is something really profound going on there. When you think about, you know, the sorts of, you know, people like Mother Teresa are a very, I, I hesitate to use the word universally only because I'm a scientist and I haven't actually <laughs> questioned every person on the earth. But but you, I, I feel like they're extremely widely respected. Why? They haven't done the sorts of things that many people want to do. Get advantage over those around them and have financial success and live a comfortable life. You know, what... Why, why is it that Mother Teresa is so widely respected as, as a good person? Surely that's got some connection with this, this fundamental idea of having something, uh, you know, God's law written in our minds and hearts. There's a resonance there with some things that, that are very deep and quite mm. universal, almost universal. Let me say it like that. Look, I like that comment. Uh, in the Father Brown Mysteries, written by Chesterton, which is a set of crime fiction stories in which the hero, the, the sleuth, the person who solves the crime, is a Catholic priest, a celibate Catholic priest removed from society. And, and one of the common themes throughout the story is that everyone treats him as if he's on the fringes of society. He's, he's stuck away in his own little church, in his own little flock, in the narrow-minded, you know, religious set to which he belongs. And, and Again and again, he reveals that he is, uh, he is more connected and more cognizant of the way people behave and why than anyone else in mm. the story. Mm. Yes. And he solves crimes with compassion. He solves times crimes with compassion by knowing what makes people tick and think and move. And he, he makes he makes a comment to the effect. Uh, he said, "People uh, in Father Brown makes a comment. He said people are always surprised that I should know these things, but has it never occurred to them that that." someone who does nothing else other than sit and think about the human condition would have insight into the human condition. Uh, and uh, he says, in many ways, we are at the centre of society, not at the fringe. And I like that idea. That sort of ties into your comment on Mother Teresa. It's someone universally, um, you know, looked up to. Also ties into this idea of, of a changed heart and mind. Of, of some element of this covenant sort of springing from within. I've, I've got issue with a couple of sort of sentiments that seem to be, you know, building up under pressure in the lesson. And I'm sure that they'll the safety valve will go off soon and, and it'll all be released. But uh, What a polite way to put it, Ken. Well, there's a strong sort of sense that, uh, that uh, covenant means plan of salvation that's sort of one of the things that's 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 coming out um and that uh exactly what that plan is is something that ought occupy our our minds and so it ought i guess what's described here though is is not necessarily a bunch of people obsessing over what god's plan of salvation is they are just experiencing god mm. You know, mm. Cam, I think that is a really, really good point. Um, and the plan of salvation, and it depends what you mean by the plan of salvation. Um, if it is simply uh, ensuring that you have 
you, you've ticked the right belief boxes so that you can get your free pass to a better life once when you die or if you're fortunate enough still to be alive when Christ returns. Um, and it's a very limited sort of thought. But if the real salvation is experiencing God, is as this says, and isn't this a wonderful thing, because they will all know me. Um, how do they mm. know God? They know God because he's infused his characteristics mm. into their very being, their hearts and their minds. And I worry about this concept. I, that is to say, I've never worried in the past, but over the course of the last 10 minutes, I've begun to worry about this concept of a, of a plan of salvation. If, if the plan of salvation means God's covenant, and, and if this covenant is genuinely new in some um, fundamental sense, as claimed by the book of Hebrews, then does that mean God changed his plan of salvation? Well, no, of course he didn't. He, he planned it all along. Well, in that case, if God planned it all along and he had the one plan running all the time, why do we talk about an old covenant and a new covenant if, in fact, the term covenant is synonymous with the plan of salvation? And the, the second thing point is, is why is it always a plan? A plan is something that you haven't done yet. So so, so it's God. It's God. When, when's he actually going to do this salving, uh, saving? When's he actually going to save people? He's always planning. What happens if we stop talking about God's plan of salvation and just started talking about his salvation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm building an aeroplane and I have lots of, and I have the plans on the table um, and I use them to construct the aeroplane. But the plans are of no significance whatsoever um, other than to produce the aeroplane. It's the reality of the aeroplane that's the important part. Um, of course, the plans are a necessary component of the production of the aeroplane, but it's actually the aeroplane itself that is the the important thing. Ken, there's another element to this. is a bit semantics, but we we are, and I know we anthropomorphize God, and we, it's hard to find language other than that to describe God because we are limited in our capacity of thought. So, you know, this might be getting a, a bit too nitpicking. But the reason, Ken, why you need plans to build the aeroplane is because of your own limitations. <laughs> um, if if you were if you were a better if you were a better aircraft builder, you you'd do it without plans. <laughs> well, if well, you had, if, I, if you I had a more full knowledge, if you had, a f- I don't know that that's a hundred percent. No, if you had a fuller knowledge <laughs> yeah. um, of of the principles of aerodynamics, and a, a deep and instinctive understanding of them. You could just look at it and say, "Yeah, I think I'll I'll bend it this way," because I can see why. Well, that... So here's 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 a devil's advocate for us all on that one, then, because in my experience, even the very best designers. Of course, we're talking about flawed humans here, but even the very best designers of of anything, um, and my my knowledge of of you know the, the history of these things is probably greatest with architecture so i'll talk about architects even the best architects in the world their first draft of x y and z it's not very good they have to do a whole bunch of drafts before they get to something that's really sublime that goes on to be the opera house or or the parthenon or whatever it might be now (laughs) because of their genius that process is often a lot faster and smoother and creates a better end result than it would be 
were they not good at what they do? Um, but my question then, as we look at these increasingly excellent covenants, <laughs> is, is are we looking at a process of iterative, iterative design? But I love that idea, and, and it brings to mind, um, uh, in a slightly different context, Luke, um, I think of things where of my parenting. And I don't know whether any of you have experienced this in your parenting, but there are times when I have had to correct one of my children and say to them, listen, uh, this conduct of yours is wrong, um, but I accept responsibility for the fact that it occurred because I have never pointed out to you the reasons why it is wrong and the alternative behaviours that you should pursue. So in part... Uh, at least in part, and in large part, perhaps because I'm the parent, um, your conduct is my fault. And so I want you to understand that. I accept responsibility for that. Now we need to work together to ensure that that conduct doesn't occur again. And you need to understand that if it does, these are the consequences that will occur. Um, uh, So it, it almost has a bit of a feel to it, Luke, that this process of improving things is, well, this does sort of covenant doesn't work so well. Um, I'll try this sort of covenant. And look, I think perhaps a better way of achieving success with these covenants is to put it in their hearts and minds. So let's do it that way. Um, well, well, Ken, there's a point of discomfort here, which is is that God, you know, seems to be fishing around in the dark trying to find something that'll work. And... And there's uh, now, now there's two things, two things that I can think of to respond to that. I'm sure you can think of another. One is if he has to deal with a people as obstinate as us, he can be forgiven for having to fish around in the dark to find something that can work. So, so in other words, he's he's not the only party exactly concerned in, in this covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, one could imagine that our behaviours genuinely do impose difficulties for him. But the other the other is that. Um, uh, Improvements in the covenant may not be because he's just thought of a great idea that he'd never thought of before. It may be that that human society and humans have 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 reached uh, a level of moral awareness where they are able to access ideas they couldn't previously access. So I, I imagine, for instance, and this is again disagreeing with the notion of a plan of salvation. If we abandon the notion of a plan, if we just say God saves, He, he saves people. That's what He does, and and He's not planning; He's actually doing it, and. The way he saved people in a in a pre-literate in a in a like before any written records, with no notion. So when when you when you talk when you look at oral societies now, I know that a lot of people were um, illiterate in Old Testament times, but there were some who could read or write and preserve records of what God had done in the past. Um, so, but you imagine, you know, before that, God must have saved people in using very different means i could hear luke almost bursting to respond to that Um. (laughs) so so my next response is my next response (laughs) is if god is in the interest of saving is there any suggestion at all or is there any necessity for this new covenant that we read about to be his last covenant no there isn't (laughs) (laughs) and the dam has burst luke um Oh, Cam, you gave me so many good thoughts um, from that. 
it's oh it's it's really stimulating um you know what you've reminded me of is you've taken me all the way back to when we were looking at the very beginning of genesis and the very because and and the story of genesis and what it means to us and why it's spiritually seeing and all the rest of it and i think one of the themes that we got really strongly from genesis is that creation was something new right it delighted god it was good because it was a new thing that hadn't existed before that hadn't been done before yeah. that that he hadn't seen before well the thing about new things is that they're they're new and they're they surprise you you know, and some of the surprises are good, and some of the surprises, like discovering that that the hearts of men always turn to evil, um, are not so good. But but it makes sense that that a new creation would have unexpected things in it, and 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 so that that really fits in with everything that that we've sort of discussed up until this point. This this idea. Um, the second really fascinating thought is. I, I agree with you 100%, Cam, about the issue you have with the plan as it's presented. But I would argue that that is not actually what good plans are. And of course, if a plan is God's plan, it must be a very good plan. So, therefore, his plan cannot possibly be static and unchanging, because mm. good plans always are changed and updated based on the latest information. You know, there's that... that, that military saying that no good no plan survives contact with the the enemy or something along those lines um and then there's some other quote that i you know escapes exactly who said it and in what context but it was something along the lines of you know um no plan is is good enough when you actually you're gonna have to throw all your plans out when you actually go into battle but you better not go into battle without a plan Because otherwise, then you'll be really stuffed. And it's so it makes perfect. If, if we think about a plan in the context of something which is constantly being changed and updated and improved, then it becomes a lot more palatable to us, I think, Cam, hmm. uh, than the idea of this, this plan, which is a plan and is not being but, implemented. Well, and indeed, that was fixed in so, place before the creation of the world. Or is there a scripture right. to that? I, I think that there is a way... There is a way to rescue. There is a way to rescue this word plan. And I think what often happens is we, you know, when people say the plan of salvation, I think that they often think of it as kind of like an equation of salvation, some formula of salvation, mm. uh, you know, faith plus um, crucifixion. Yeah. What is it when we, when we, when we ask forgiveness for our sins, repentance, what, there's a word, there'd be a word. Absolution. Redemption. Atonement. Redemption. Yeah, faith. Atonement. Yeah, faith plus repentance equals atonement. This this, this sort of idea. Yeah, we've right? all been this to Sabbath of... school. We know words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but think of it. I I personally much prefer the idea the the language of a story of salvation. And stories have have different episodes. They have maybe different chapters. Uh, if you're going to use the word plan, think of it more like a book of Lego instructions that take you from. Uh, a whole pile of bits on a table to a, to a finished model. The there's a sequence of steps. It is a plan of sorts, but it's not a static thing at all. It's it's a it's a story with direction and purpose. And there is a structure to a story still. Uh, there's a structure there, but well, it is something then, that develops. You know, 
we we can also look at it this way. Ken, you're building a plane. What's the what's the plane uh, that you're it's building? It's a Vans RV8. Wonderful airplane. It's yeah. an RV8, and you have the plans for the RV8. Is it named RV8 for a specific reason? Uh, because it comes after seven. Um. <laughs> is it? it are, are the plans for the eight better than the plans for the seven? Uh, indeed, this is a really interesting thing because there are a number of different uh, phases in which the kits have been produced so that the plans that I have are about 42 pages long. If you were to buy a plan for the same type of aircraft, the RV8 today, you would have plans that are about 80 pages long. Um, so there, there's a, there's one difference for a start because there are thousands of these aeroplanes that have been built over time and the plans have been improved as a result of the people who built them coming across difficulties in the original plans. Um. Mm. Mm. Well, can I suggest another reason why perhaps the plan of salvation is that that word is used in this context um, is because I do think that in the minds of some, or perhaps in the language that we use, the idea um, is expressed that salvation is a thing that is yet to happen. It's, a, mm. it's something that so God has a plan of salvation because one day He will save us all, like in the future, because the plan mm. is so mm. you know intrinsically tied to judgment at the second coming, and that's not an image of God's salvation. I don't that I think is upheld, at least in the Old Testament. God, God is not the God who will save. He's the God who saves. And, and in this passage, uh, what's described is quite an intimate connection between God. God the people will know God. Even then, though, I'm, I'm undone because it's in future tense. But, uh, you know, it's not necessarily... Uh, if you think that salvation is something that happens at the second coming... Then, then God must necessarily have a plan, and then your your focus, Locke, as you said, very much is in discovering what that plan, what's the formula, so that when we get there, I'll, I'll know what's happening. Mm. Whereas if your emphasis is that God is a God who who saves, actively saves, and that and mm. that our job is, you know, uh, the best, surest path to a life of eternity with God is a life well lived here, like I mean, a wholesome, mm. good, a good life, not just good in the moral sense. I mean, one of the things that's obvious in the Bible is that a, a life that's morally good is also good in the sense of saying, oh, that was a good apple, you know, a delicious, a tasty, you know, life. That, that God's really interested in helping us live well now uh, and, and to help other people live well and that, and that God saves us from many things now. Uh, hmm. And I think, I think if, we, if we say then, oh, well, God is a God who saves and what... what saving is he trying to accomplish in my life what's he trying to save me from right now and and what's my yeah. part in helping him save other people right now from things that they need saving from then the need to think of a plan is a little less i think it helps us to to remember the context of things like jeremiah um where you know it's it's a low point for israel and judah and for the the people of god and they are looking forward to something better than what they are currently experiencing. Um, in that sense, it reminds me a lot of sort of the Psalms of David, these sort of prayers, essentially, the Psalms are prayers, um, where he starts off just in the darkest despair over all of these troubles that he's facing. And at the end of the Psalm, presumably the troubles are still there, but he feels a lot better. 
Um, mm. And I get that sense of Jeremiah as well. So it it is, I I think there is a a important part of of Christianity and of understanding Scripture that is about looking forward to better things to come. Um, but I don't think that can't coexist with exactly what you're talking about. Hmm. Um, that good things that that God is is saving us now, um, is is covenanting with us now, um, has a, has a purpose for us now as well. I mean that's something that I've gotten very strongly out of out of the previous covenants we've looked at as well. Can I? Um, can I? I think these two things coexist together. I think we need to also think about wrapping it up. No, Cam, I was just jumping in to say I think we, we our time is is running over, so we we ought to think about a way to get from here to the end. This comment is not going to wrap things up. Um, <laughs> so appreciate your honesty, <laughs> uh, Luke. While you were talking, I I just looked back a few verses and I found some worrying. I'm, I'm glad we started at verse thirty-one because first. Uh, Th- 29 says, you know, God said, I'm going to build the nation of Israel up. I'm not going to tear it down. In those days, people will no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and so the children's teeth are set on edge. The idea of children inheriting the punishment of their parents. Of um, their parents instead, yes. everyone will die for his own sin. So there you are. That's that's a mark of this new covenant is that everyone's going to die for their own sin instead of their parents' sin. Uh, whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. And then, of course... <clears throat> It launches into the passage we read, which does say in verse 34, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. So, so you know, that fits into the flow. One change here is that the covenant is definitely being shifted away from the collective and towards the individual. Mm. And mm. I wonder if, uh, you know, uh, there's a dangerous sort of tribal identity group think that I belong to a group and someone else belongs to a group. And, uh, you know, if someone from your group hurts someone from my group, then I can exact vengeance on anyone, anyone from your group. It doesn't matter who it is. And there's a group thing that's, that's a bit dangerous. And, and the sort of course of human history has been away from that group think, at least in Western culture, towards a much more individualist culture. But I was reflecting on that and then thinking in the New Testament uh, to all the passages in Paul where it says, you know, you're part of a body. You can't look down on other people. And it seems to me that God is not removing us from groupthink. It's taking us away from an instinctive, you know, identity-based groupthink to a deliberate groupthink, one that's chosen and reads very much in the vein of this passage. Uh, what is right will be done, Will be an in, there will be internal changes. You are to belong to groups in the future. This is a different topic. This is is a bad way to finish this podcast because it's opening a whole new sort of realm of discussion. But, you know, in the past, you've belonged to whole groups and I've dealt with you, with you at the group level. And this, this is much more individual. And then when we reach the New Testament, what are, what are we meant to do with our newfound individuality? We are meant to have an even deeper appreciation of each other. Not because, not because they belong to our group, but because they are themselves individuals of value. And that together we make something, which is which is, you know, not there with with each of us. There's a lot of ideas here. We're we're going to have to cut it short. Any other closing thoughts? That any other cans of worms to open, or ideas or new directions? I, I just wanted to run with two things, um, to close, and one is 
Can... That's not that's not what I asked, Ken. No, I don't know. That's okay. You can I... you can you can have two things. Yeah. Well, I hope I'll keep them brief. And they both thoughts from A. W. Tozer, um, and from his wonderful book, which I'd highly recommend, The Pursuit of God. Um, and one of them is that we run a real risk uh, by putting the work of God off into the future um, and not recognising his presence now. Um, and the other is the absolute, vast, wonderful, utter and complete delight that there is in knowing God and and knowing God now and the availability of his presence now. And I really feel that that's something that Isaiah is getting at here, that they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest and that it will be an intimate connection, a presence now, a presence in our very hearts and minds uh, now, not just something that is put off uh, to the future in some uh, forensic determination that gives us a right to uh, exercise the privilege of heaven forever. Um, it is something that starts here and now, a knowledge of God, of the beauty and the holiness of God, uh, that we come into his presence intimately now. Thank you, Ken. That's a wonderful thought on which to end. And may that be our, our constant desire and um, and focus of attention. Uh, please join us again next week as we continue our discussion. We will eventually, I think, move into the new covenant. We've already sort of preempted some of those ideas. And uh, we very much enjoy these discussions. We'd encourage you to share them with anyone who you feel would also enjoy them. And uh, thank you for joining us. And please join us again next week.